fantastic study through the book of Romans. We find ourselves in chapter 4. If you remember, if you've been following with us, the book of Romans is broken down into uh, being symbolized by four different buildings from chapter 1 all the way through the end of chapter 5. What building are we in, church? We're in the courthouse. So it's as if the Apostle Paul has called court into session and he's been building his case in the first three chapters. What's he building a case for? He's building a case for humanity's failure. Humanity has failed to live right before God. There's immoral people that have lived and rejected God. They failed, and we see the results of that in society. When people reject God, it doesn't go well for society. We've seen that Paul said, even those who are self-righteous have failed. You've set up a certain amount of rules for yourself by which you'll be right with God. You say, oh, well, I've lived a good life, but you don't even measure up to your own measurement of a good life. You don't even stick with your own conviction. So even the, the self-righteous person has failed. And the person who trusts in rituals such as baptism or circumcision or Eucharist or these kinds of things, the rituals themselves don't make us right with God. So he builds a case for failure. And then speaking to Jew and to Gentile, and specifically speaking to the Jew about their rituals and self-righteousness and those kind of things. So that's where we came, and we finally ended up there in chapter 3, where Paul confirms the case for failure. He says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then that left us feeling like what? Like pretty hopeless, right? Left us feeling hopeless, like, well, if everybody's sinned and everybody's fallen short and everybody's failed, well, now what? And Paul said, ah, I'm glad you asked. And then he begins to build his next case, which will take us through the end of chapter 4, which is the end of the sermon today. He builds the case for faith. You see, you thought Lee Strobel thought of that. If you've read his book, he wrote the book, The Case for Christ, and he wrote The Case for Christmas, and he wrote a book called The Case for Faith. So maybe you've read that. He didn't invent it. The Apostle Paul here in verses 13 through the end of the chapter makes the case for faith, actually starts it at the beginning of chapter four, and he calls to build his case for faith. He calls a very important person to take the witness stand. Who does he call? He calls Father Abraham. Just like in our current day of trying to discover what and how to interpret the Constitution, we might call on quotes from who? The founding fathers. What was their intent? How did it work out for them? What did they mean? Well, in the same way that Jefferson and Adams and these guys, uh, Benjamin Franklin, in the same way that their input means a lot to our understanding, for the Jew, it was Abraham. Because remember, was Abraham a Jew to begin with? This is going to be a challenging question, right? No, Abraham lived in Mesopotamia, between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. He was not a Jew. God called him sovereignly and made him into a nation and many nations we'll see as we go through the passage. So, so he calls Abraham to the stand, to take the stand, and he's important to the Jew because he's their founding father. And if it's true for Abraham, then it would be true for them too, because they're Abraham's descendants. So if Paul can build the case for Abraham, he can build the case for the rest of the nation. But the other reason that Abraham is important, and I don't know if you're like me, but I don't do real well with abstract ideas. Like I can read about it in a book and you can tell me about it, but if I see you do it, then I get it. Anybody else like that? 
If I see you do it, if I see how it looks, ah, now I understand. So Abraham is held up for us as a practical example of what it means to walk by faith, to live by faith, this kind of faith that Paul is building a case for. Since law and since rules and rituals didn't work, Paul says the hope that we have is through faith. And that's what he elaborates in this whole chapter. But specifically in chapter 4, verses 13 through the end, he's going to show us why it couldn't be through works anyway, why works don't work. Then he's going to tell us why it can't be through us. It's got to be through God. And then he's going to tell us that it doesn't just apply to Abraham. It applies to us too. So we'll work through the sections as we get to the end of the chapter. So let's read verse 13 through 15. For the promise that he would be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Why? Because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. So maybe some of you read that and go, I have no idea what's being talked about. Today's my first day. What in the world is going on? I've just given you the introduction. And to help you with this, we're talking about this man, Abraham. His story is found mostly in the Old Testament. He's referred to in the New Testament quite a bit. But his story's there in the Old Testament. He lived after Noah in that time. And God decides to give him a promise. God reveals himself to this man, Abraham. He was from an idol-worshiping family and makes Abraham a promise. And he just says to Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations and I'm going to bless you. And that's a great promise, right? If someone says, hey, I'm going to bless you, that's a pretty cool promise. Then we see how that works out in the life of Abraham. And we'll talk more about that as we go through. But the promise is what I want to focus you on. You see, he says, for the promise. For Abraham, it was that promise of blessing. It was that promise that you're going to be the father of many nations. In fact, the interesting thing about Abraham is when God gives him this promise, how many children does he have at the time? Zero. Zero children. So it's hard to give a guy a promise having a huge family when he doesn't even have child number one yet. But that was what happened. Now, what you have to know about this promise is, did you hear the word if in that sentence? God said, I will bless you, Abraham. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless your family, and anybody who blesses you, I'll bless. Is there an if anywhere in there? Well, in the Greek, which is what this was written in, this New Testament is written in Greek, in the Greek, there's two words that can mean promise. This one means an unconditional promise. So you know the difference between conditional and unconditional promises, right? I mean, that's important to know. A conditional promise is an if-then. If you do this, if you perform a certain way, then you get the reward. And that's how most of our lives work, right? That's how many schools work. If you get an A on the test and get A's on the test all the way through your career, then you can be valedictorian. But if you don't, then what? You don't get that. I grew up in a family uh, where we had this thing called Kitty City. It was Toys R Us around here. For us in Philadelphia, it was Kitty City. And I knew, man, my dad would tell me, okay, if you get this good grade or if you do this thing, then I'll take you to Kitty City. Or if you behave at the doctor, then we're going to Kitty City. Like, Kitty City, all right, go in there. I knew what that meant. And what it produced in me is years of counseling needed because I became a huge people pleaser. That's what it produces, right? I mean, it's just like, then you're always doing something for what you can get. 
Because our whole world is based on conditional promises. We're so used to it in our daily lives. We're used to it in school. We're used to it in work. If you show up for work, then you get a paycheck. If you don't, then you get fired. That's the way it works. And so parents, can I just encourage parents? I remember as a parent the day that, that I was struck by grace versus conditional, unconditional promises. I will do this for you just because. I'm not going to get you an ice cream cone because you've got good grades. I'm taking you to Papa Jim's just because I love you. And I remember being convicted of that as a parent to be careful about always giving conditional promises to my kids. It's always if then. And when you set up rules and regulations, then there's punishment that always happens, right? If you say, here's the rule, you got to get an A. Well, if you get a B, sorry, you missed out. And so there's always, no, no, get away from there. Don't do this. Get away from there. And if you're law-based in your household, if your home is legalistic, then you're always saying, no, the kids are always getting in trouble. And what you have to do is you have to find times and ways to bless them. Why? Because you're their parents and because they're your kids and there's a relationship there and you love them. And so sometimes you give them something, not because they earned it, but just because you love them. Now, here's another instance I'll tell you about marriage. Let's talk about marriage. Now, I've probably done about 30 weddings since I started in ministry. And I can't remember a single wedding where the vows were, I promise to love and cherish in sickness and in health if you do this and that and the other thing, right? Maybe we need to be reminded that marriage promises are unconditional. One, that the bride says to the groom, I promise to love you for better, worse, sickness and health till death do us part. It's not like I promise to love you in health, but if you get sick, then I promise to love you because you got money, but if you're poor... And we laugh about that, but grace changes everything. Chuck Smith's book on Romans is called Grace Changes Everything. When your home changes from law and performance-based to grace, it sets people free. Then people are free to do things because love demands it, not because law demands it. Think about in church. Don't we have this attitude sometimes in church where we say, well, we promise to love you and accept you if you wear the right clothes. If you carry the right Bible, read the right translation, if you show up for prayer and small group and Wednesday night, then we'll love you. So are we going to be a grace-based church or are we going to be a law-based church? Are you willing to say, you come, if someone comes in here, are you willing to say, I love you just because God loves you? Not waiting for you to perform a certain thing and then we'll love you. So the promise that he's talking about to Abraham is an unconditional promise that he'd be the heir of the world And it didn't come through Abraham's performance. God didn't say, I'll bless you if. Sometimes God does say, I'll bless you if. But sometimes God just says, here's what I'm going to do. And you say, all right then. Doesn't come through law, but it comes through the righteousness of faith, of trusting God. When you trust, if I said, hey, guys, it's Thanksgiving on Thursday. Tell you what, here's what we're going to do. For Thanksgiving, everybody who shows up here 9 a.m., we're giving you $1,000. Now, now, this is not, this, uh, this is an example. It's called an illustration. <laughs> Everybody who shows up. Now, some of you might say, no way. No way are they. Do-. No, that's, it's a gimmick. It's not real. It's not, and you would never show up, right? But some of you might say, 
You think they're crazy enough to do it? I'm at least going to go find out. I'm at least going to test the promise and find out. And some of you say, well, you know, we've been going to this church for a long time and I've never heard Steve lie to us. And if he says it, you know, he means it. So you'd have to show up. We're not going to come to your house and give it to you. You'd have to show up here. So faith always does involve an action to implement that faith. So Abraham, it didn't come through Abraham's performance. The promise was there. It was just because Abraham, it says he believed God. He did. When God said it, when he read it, now Abraham didn't have a Bible, but when he read it, he said, I believe that's true. And his life showed it. Abraham becomes an example. Look at verse 14. Now here's the problem. Our relationship with God be one based on rules and performance. He says, if those who are of the law are heirs or are the ones that will be receiving the blessing, then faith is made void and the promise is made of no effect. So if it's based on works or good deeds, I mean, so many people I meet are trying to get to God through good works. And you ask them, are you going to heaven? Yes, I'm going to heaven. How do you know? I'm a good person. Okay, that's how we know. You've just revealed that you have a works-based relationship with God. And matter of fact, someone that I know very well one time said to me, look, I do my best to be a good person. And if that's not good enough for God, then that's too bad. And they had believed that they're a good person. That's a law-based, that's a works-based thing. And that's why Paul had spent the first section dealing with the case for failure. Now he says, if it's of the law that we get blessing, then you don't need faith. Then no one needs to trust God because you trust yourself to accomplish what's necessary to get the blessing for yourself. You know, people have a hard time receiving gifts. Have you noticed that? Maybe you're one of them. Like if someone tries to give you a gift, like you feel like you got to reciprocate. Like you feel like you got to earn it. It's not right. I just can't receive a gift. I was like that for a long time. And uh, we'd go out for lunch and then the argument began, well, who's going to pay for lunch? And this person wanted to pay. And I said, no, 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 I'm paying. No, no, you're not paying. No, no, you can't bless me. I'm paying. I'm blessing you. And when the argument would start, because we don't like to receive a gift. You can't be a Christian unless you learn to receive a gift. And so many in the church are still trying to earn what God wants to give you for free. So finally, one day, went out to lunch with this guy. We were working together. And he said, okay, today I'm buying lunch. I said, you're on. You got it. He said, what, no argument? No, thank you. And I don't think he had money that day. I think he was just expecting me to say, no, I'll buy. But if it's someone that offers you a gift and then you try to earn it, it kind of demeans the gift, doesn't it? It kind of demeans the blessing. So you don't need to have faith. You don't need to believe that they're going to do it because you've earned it. And then the promise is ineffectual. If you're, again, if you're out there working to get it, it doesn't matter if someone makes a promise to you to give you something because now you've kind of switched it around and said, well, no, now you owe it to me. A promise is something that's given freely. You can't give someone freely something they've earned. And aside from that, it actually works opposite. The further problem, why it can't be law, why it can't be good works, is because law brings about wrath. Quite the opposite of blessing, isn't it? We think, oh, I keep these rules, therefore I'll get blessed. And we live like that in the church, don't we? Here's another way to test to see if you have a law-based relationship with God. If you've ever said, well, God, I've been reading my Bible and I've been going to prayer meeting and I've been showing up for church, not just on Sundays, but Wednesdays too. And now how come you let this happen to me? Why would you do this to me? So you've expressed and you've revealed that you said, God, I've done my part. I've done my things and now you owe me. 
instead of letting God be God, you've kind of forced and manipulated him. I took communion. I did these things. And now, God, you owe me. Instead, what happens is we tend to look at the good things we do, but once there's rules, now the rules have to be kept. Now there has to be a judge, right? How many of you play tennis? Anybody play tennis? My wife's family, all tennis players, excellent tennis players. My wife's mother was uh, like a master's champion in tennis. So we've been married 22 years. Her parents are now in their 80s, but all through their 70s, we'd go out to play tennis and they would just wipe the court up with me. I'm, they got me running over here and running over there and they're just kind of whoop, lobbing it over here and whoop, lobbing it over there and just playing me. And I'm exhausted. Now, I thought, wouldn't it be great if we just get all the lines off the court? I mean, I could be a great tennis player if it weren't for those lines. Oh, whose idea was lines? Wouldn't it be great, just big black piece of asphalt and a net, you know? I'll take the net down. Let's just hit it back and forth. Then we can enjoy the thing, right? Golf, same thing. I don't golf because it's too frustrating. There's a flag and a hole, one little hole. How limited is that? How narrow-minded could that be? Put holes everywhere. Now I can golf. You see, because we minute we say, here's the line. We've now clearly marked the boundaries. And people have a hard time with that. If we say homosexuality, that's out. If we say racism, that's out. Love your neighbor, that's in. See, now all of a sudden, conviction comes in. And now all of a sudden, we can't say anymore, well, look how good I'm doing. I'm earning God's blessing. What we're actually doing is receiving the judgment for hitting the ball out of the court. And we all fall short of that. With law-based relationships, you go up to, you're in the grocery store and you see parents and their kids, get back or get back in the car, put that down. That's not for you. That's for later. Get over here. Stop doing that. Stop crying. It's all, wow, just negative laws and rules and they constrain and they turn people into hypocrites because now I've got to lie if I'm not measuring up. And so Paul says, look, it can't be law. All the religions of the world that are trying to climb that ladder to God and all falling short. The Buddhist is trying to weigh out their good deeds and their bad deeds. If my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, how do you know? They don't. They have no guarantee. They have no security in that, which is why Paul moves on. The other problem with law-based or rules-based relationship with God is not just that we end up with God's wrath because the law, it calls out the rebellion in our hearts, doesn't it? The minute you tell someone that's in and that's out, they want to do what's out. Oh yeah, who do you think you are to tell me what to do, right? Come on, tell me I'm talking to somebody who's alive out there. You know it's true. You have teenagers. They got to work through that, right? We help them and work through that rebellion. You tell me I can't, I want to be my own person. And the minute you tell them you can't do this, that's exactly what they want to do. And the law actually brings that out. That's why law can't be the way to receive blessing from God rules and rituals and all that. The other problem, again, is a problem of insecurity. Look at what happens in verse 16. Paul says, therefore, it is of faith, it's of trusting God, that it might be according to God's grace, to, that he just wants to give it to us. We don't have to earn it. He says, I'm going to give it to you so that the promise might be sure to all seed, so that it can be secure. It can be certain. If it was up to me, I mean, think about it. What if your relationship with God, what if your blessings from God was based on your ability to always do what's right. Okay, you want it based on that? Think of the rich young ruler. What did he say? 
to Jesus. He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Oh, so you want to come based on that? Well, how about let's just start with the Ten Commandments. How about let's start with one? How about this, gang? How many of you have continually and regularly, consistently loved your neighbor as yourself? Anybody? So one day you manage to pull it together, you're feeling good, and you do something kind for your neighbor. But then they do something mean to you, they hit your mailbox, or they throw something at you, or they, whatever it is they do, and now you're mad at them, and you get angry at them, and you do something mean back. Well, guess what? You've just lost your blessing from God, because it was based on your security. I mean, we can't even keep, and we say, I am not eating sugar anymore. But then Thanksgiving happens, and you go, okay, starting tomorrow. I'm on my diet tomorrow. And then Christmas happens. And there's cake and pie, and it all looks so good. And we celebrate Christmas morning by eating dessert. We just eat leftover dessert Christmas morning, and we love it, and it's wonderful. And so we say, okay, well, I'll start the diet New Year's. New Year. I'll make the resolution and New Year's, and we make the resolution. And then what happens? How long does that last? You see, if it's left on our strength, we are at best, church, listen, we are at best On our best day, we're inconsistent. And so now why would we want to trust in our ability to keep God's blessing in our life? You see how silly that is? But if we just keep believing God, I just trust God that somehow you're going to bring your word to pass, then it's secure with him. If I didn't earn it, then I also can't lose it. Isn't that true? If I don't have to earn God's blessing and his love, then I also can't lose it. So that's what Paul says. If it's based on God, then it's safe. If it's based on me, then I'm up and down and in and out and crazy. And think about how this plays out in your everyday life. Think about the difference in the way you think and the way you live and the hope you have if you're living in law world versus grace world. Can I introduce you to, can I welcome you into grace world? Grace world is a wonderful place to live. It's so much nicer than law world. And if you're not there yet, I hope by the end of the study in Romans, you'll be there. All right. So it's got to be secure. So that's why it's got to be God and not me. Because it's by grace. It's got to be by grace. Not only to those who are of the law, the Jew, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, the believing Gentile, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. So Paul points out, Abraham is not just the father of the Jew, He's also the father of the believing Gentile because before Abraham was a Jew, before he was circumcised, before the law ever existed, Abraham believed God. He believed in God. He trusted that God would do what he said. And that was the rightest thing that he ever did. The rightest thing you can ever do is believe God. I think God believes in himself, right? That's right to do. So you should also believe in God. That's righteous to believe God. So he believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And then God was able to fulfill the promise. Watch what happens next. Verse 17, in the presence of him who believed God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. So just stop there for a second. What is Paul highlighting now? See, if we're talking about faith and we're talking about trust, well, you can't just say, well, I'm a person of trust. You'll meet people that, well, I'm, I'm a person of faith. What does that mean? You know, when someone tells you that, that means nothing. Unless you know what they have faith in. You have to have faith 
in something. What most people are saying, well, I have faith in myself. Most people trust in themselves. And we're seeing why that is ludicrous. But faith has to have an object. You know, we just got back from Florida. We went down there for the wedding, came back up. We flew on an airplane. Wonderful invention, the airplane. I don't like to drive 20 hours. I'd rather get on the plane, hour and a half, you're there. But to do that, you realize the faith it takes to get on an airplane? I mean, and you know what? I so trusted the airline, I never even looked in the cockpit to see who's flying the thing. What if I got some six-year-old up there playing on his iPad? Like, I should know better. I should have looked, and I didn't inspect the plane. You know, I should have looked at the plane. They don't let you see the plane. You got to go in through the little, little narrow pathway there, and they just go in the door, and it's all blocked off. That makes me nervous. Why are you blocking that off so I can't see it? I want to know there's an engine on that wing and on that wing. And if I see any duct tape, I'm out of here. I wouldn't trust the plane that duct tape on it. I mean, call me crazy. But so what I'm trying to say, again, using humor to say, it's not just about trust. It's not just blank trust. It's trusting in something or someone. If you showed up for that $1,000, you'd be trusting in me to be true to my word. And you'd be very sorry when you got here. You know, this is going to be on the radio, and I don't want anybody coming and go, hey, where's the $1,000? Because, look, I'm human. You see, really, one of the biggest problems in church, not what you think it would be, it's trust issues. We got a lot of trust issues because we say, well, I can't trust people because people have let me down. People have let you down. And some people feel God has let them down because they expected something specific from God that he never promised. So you've really got to rely and trust at his word for what he says. But we have trust issues and we take that to God. I don't know if I can trust God. Well, I know you can't trust you. So what are your choices? And God is the God who raises the dead. See, I could say, hey, I'll meet you next Thursday. I could die between now and then. And I won't be able to fulfill my promise. Not even death can stop God from fulfilling his promise. Matter of fact, he uses it to do that. God said to Abraham, I want you to take that son of promise, Isaac. Remember, he had the son that God had promised him. He's born. They name him Isaac, which means laughter because Sarah never believed it would happen. We'll talk about that in a minute. They name him Isaac, and then God says, I want you to sacrifice him. Now, wait a second. You made me a promise. You gave me a child. Through him, he's going to have kids and more kids, and, and they're going to have nations come from them. If I sacrifice him, God, I mean, just call me stupid, but I'm just seeing that this kind of ends if that happens. But Abraham took Isaac up that mountain, and he had the knife raised and was ready to do it. Why? Because he believed that even if he killed him, that God would raise him from the dead and still fulfill his promise to him. I don't know how God's going to do it. You ever looked at a promise? I look at some of these promises in the Bible and I go, I don't know how that works. You know, life after death, we haven't seen it. We haven't ever been there. Only one person's been there and come back. That's Jesus. We believe in a resurrected body, not just an ethereal, spiritual resurrection. We believe in a resurrected body. Jesus had a physical body. And we believe that. How does that work? I have no idea. I don't know. And you know what? I don't have to know how. I just have to know who. He's the God who raises the dead. If the resurrection isn't true, then we're wasting our time. He's the God who raises the dead, and he calls those things which do not exist 
as though they did. Things that haven't happened in the future, God is so trustworthy that he can talk about them in the present as if they'd already happened, even though they haven't happened yet. That's why he can talk about us being glorified, even though it hasn't happened yet. Because it's as good as done. That's why we can talk about the second coming of Christ with such certainty, because he said he was going to come, and I believe him. When's that going to happen? Don't know. But I trust him, and I'm waiting for him to come. This is the kind of God that Abraham believed in. This is our God. And now let's see Abraham's response. I have to move quickly through these verses. Abraham's response, because of the trustworthiness of God, he says, contrary to hope, verse 18, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. Circle two words, believed and became. Believed and became. See, we live in the world of, I won't believe it, until I see it. That's how experience talks. That's how walking by sight talks. But if you want to walk by faith, you're never going to see it unless you believe it. Belief comes first. And that's why people come to church and they get frustrated because they don't come based on faith. They come saying, well, I'm going to wait till I see something and then I'll believe. And you never see it because you never believed. And if you never believe, you'll never see it. But if you come in saying, I know I need God. I know I'm a sinner. I believe in the resurrection. I'm coming. I'm seeking him diligently. Then you will see him work. And that's what Abraham found. Contrary to hope. He was past the point of hope. But yet in hope, he believed. And what did he find out? Tried and proven. I knew a person that had a Bible. And all through their Bible, next to verses was the letters T-P. T-P. And what that stood for was tried and proven. Here's a promise God made. It's been tested and it's been proved. And that's what Abraham found. Verse 19 says, And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. So the whole thing could have been derailed if Abraham heard God say, Okay, you're going to have a child. Then they have the whole Ishmael thing. So the problem with Abraham wasn't whether or not God would do it. The question was how. And he thought they'd have to use the maidservant Hagar to do this. And God corrects them and says, no, it's actually going to be from your body and your wife, Sarah. Now, the problem with that was Abe's 100. Abe's 100 years old. And his wife, was she 99? She's 90, 10 years younger than him. He could have looked at that and said, there's no way. There's no way. But it says, and not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was 100 years old. And Sarah was infertile. Sarah had never had kids. And when God sees something that's dead, see the deadness of Sarah's womb, God says, I want to show myself by bringing life to something that's dead. So if you got something in your life that's kind of seems like it's dead, could be a dead marriage, dead relationship, dead faith, you watch God bring it to life. He gives life to things that have been dead. But you got to trust him. You've got to trust him. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able to perform. Fantastic. So can you imagine the discussion between Abraham and Sarah? Because I want to make a point here that maybe doesn't need to be made, but should be made. Maybe some of you already know this, that Abraham and Sarah did not conceive by an immaculate conception. See, Mary, the Holy Spirit, boom, pregnant. Not Abraham and Sarah. 
So Abraham comes to see Sarah. She's hanging out, having her morning tea. He comes in and says, hey, honey, good morning. Hi, how are you? Good, good morning. Good morning. You know, she's got her walker. You know, how's it going? Just getting breakfast. Um, Abraham says, I've been spending some time with God. You have? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been spending some time with God. Guess what? God made a promise. He did. Well, what did God promise to us, honey? What did God promise to us? Well, Sarah, you might want to sit down for this one. I hope our medical insurance is up to date because we're going to be parents. And she probably, you know, spit the tea out. Parents. <laughs> Who'd have thought, right? Who'd have thought? I mean, 100 years old, we're going to do this thing. Wow. Okay, here we go, right? But they did their part. Let me just say that. They did their part by faith. And that's what I say. When God gives you a promise, it's laid hold of by faith and actions that are in accordance with believing what you've read. A lot of people read the Bible. Very few people believe it. Some people say they come to Calvary Chapel not because we say the Bible is true, but because we really believe it is. There's a lot of pulpits around the country, around the world, where the Bible isn't even opened. And then when it is, you're not sure that the pastor really believes it. You can look up the statistics about how few pastors actually believe in the resurrection of Jesus, actually believe in the virgin birth. And if you can't be there, where do you go from there? But Abraham, instead of hearing the promises and going, okay, God, no way. He read the promises or he heard the promises and it actually strengthened him. It actually said, okay, because I know God and I know that if God says it, he's going to do it. And I can lay hold of that. I can lay into that. I can grasp that. I don't know when, I don't know how, but I know it's true. That God, he was fully convinced that what God had promised, God would perform. And even if that means saving unrighteous people and bringing them into relationship. Now, did that just apply to Abraham? Or does it apply to us as well? Was that a specific case? Or is it the case for everybody? Verse 23 says, Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, given to him, put into his account, this righteousness of God, this relationship, but also for us. For who? For us. This same thing, walking with God by faith, applies to me and to you today in the same way it applied to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. It shall be imputed to us who believe in a different kind of raising from the dead, not Isaac or not Sarah's womb, but who? Who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. See, sometimes people say, I can't believe in a resurrection. Then you can't be saved. Then you can't even believe in Genesis 1. If God can in the beginning create from nothing, then resurrection's a snap. You got starting material. So why is resurrection difficult if we believe in creation? And if you can't believe in creation or resurrection, then I don't know what you believe. Then you don't have this God of the Bible. Because we believe that Jesus, as Paul said, he was delivered up because of our offenses and raised because of our justification. He was not delivered up from death, but delivered up to death because we had fallen short. Because all humanity had fallen short. And God loves the world. And so he has to make a way for fallen, unholy, sinful people to cross this infinite gap of holiness to reach a perfect and holy and righteous God. Seems impossible. But through Jesus Christ, taking our sin on himself, 
taking our sin to death, dying in our place. I mean, if a guy gets the electric chair, he's on death row, he's being punished for his crime, he gets the electric chair, his sin is paid for, right? Now, the problem is, what if he comes back to life? They look at each other, what do we do now? I mean, do you kill him again? No, his punishment's been paid for. You can't punish a person for the same crime twice. So Jesus died, he was delivered up to death to take our sins, the penalty of our sins on himself. He substituted himself for you so that your sin for once and forever could be declared finished and cleansed and dealt with. And then he rose again. Why? So you could live. So you could live. And not just live, live free. Live free. You want to live back under the law? I don't know why you would. Because Jesus Christ is promising you freedom and his death and his resurrection have secured that for us so we don't have to secure it for ourselves. I don't know where you get a better offer than that. Geico doesn't even get a better offer than that, right? You can save 15% on your car insurance or you can save yourself a lifetime and eternity of trouble and eternal destruction and separation from God by just believing that there is one way to God and it's not through being a good person. It's through the righteous one, Jesus Christ, and his sacrifice on your behalf. All you have to do is accept it, and it will change your life. Amen? Amen.